0: Hello, and welcome to episode 32 of the Foodcast. I'm Davey H., and this episode is simply just too much of a good thing. It's springtime, and man, I missed it. And I miss you guys, too. It's been more than two weeks, but we're back with an action-packed episode of the Foodcast. On the advice of my own personal podfather, I've adjusted the release date of the Foodcast and aim to get new episodes out each Monday instead of Friday, which was the previous cadence. I also aim to misbehave in this episode. I do so by once again answering questions of followers of the Karma Sense Media Empire. In this episode, we talk about cheese a new study regarding the health benefits of being vegetarian, genetically modified organisms, or GMOs, eggs, and the age-old question of, can you have too much of a good thing? You might also hear birds singing in the background, too. And that's because I have the windows open. Because it's springtime! Our first question came through Facebook from Bell, whose simple request was, quote, Let's talk cheese, unquote. There was a smiley face on there, too. Thanks, Bell. But, Bell, surely you know better than to ask me an open-ended question like that about food. Especially today of all days, National Grilled Cheese Sandwich Day, which falls on the 11th day of the month of April, which is National Grilled Cheese Sandwich Month. I could devote a couple of episodes just on cheese. Crap! I could fill an entire episode just on one variety of cheese. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Foodcast, I'm Davey H., and this is the Limburger episode. But no, not here. That's in the queue for a future episode of the Foodcast. Fortunately, Belle, you and I have a history, so I know the kind of things you're interested in. I assume your question's about cheese and its relation to healthy eating. Because there's a lot of misinformation out there, and it's about time we approach the topic with some karma sense. So here we go. Cheese and health. There are a lot of reasons people have for avoiding cheese. Maybe you don't like it. Well, that's cool. There are no special nutrients in cheese that you can't get from other foods. Maybe you're a vegan. If so, you've come to that decision for whatever reason you have. You believe that skipping animal products is better for some combination of your health, the planet, or your spirit, and however you apply that rationale to meat, eggs, and other dairy products certainly applies to cheese too. The food cast often challenges the notion that avoiding animal products is healthier, more sustainable, and more humane, but not to convince vegetarians and vegans otherwise. I do it simply to better understand people's conviction and decision-making process. I really don't know the answer. They may be right, they may be wrong. I'm trying to figure it out myself, so I kind of push on the concepts to see where it'll take me, if it'll give me any more insight. So I'm not going to challenge that notion in this segment of this episode, but I do pick at it a little later. And with that out of the way, Bell, the remainder of my response focuses on the derogatory health claims about cheese and whether it's the Munster everybody believes it is. So why do people think cheese is unhealthy? It's high in fat. It's high in saturated fat. It's high in cholesterol. Cheese has trans fats. It has lactose. It's dairy. It's addictive, like amphetamines and heroin. Did I miss anything? Let's look at these one at a time. Cheese is high in fat. It's true. In the scheme of things, unless you're eating low-fat cheese, the cheese is going to be higher in fat than many other foods. But having the virtue of low-fat doesn't make a food nutritious. Lucky Charm cereal may be low in fat and magically delicious, but they're not all that healthful. Long-time listeners of the Foodcast know that fat in the diet isn't the enemy. Fat's an essential part of the diet and contributes to your health. Conventional wisdom is coming around to this. The 2015 Dietary Guidelines for Americans make a tacit nod to this evolving philosophy, and I predict that in 2020, the nods will become less tacit, whatever that means. Is that a free pass to eat all the fat in the form of cheese that you want? No. No. Fat is high in calories, and cheese is low in many essential nutrients. Making cheese the center of your diet would probably make you heavier, sicker, and constipated. Maybe it's just me, but that doesn't sound like a fun way to go through life. But the fact that cheese contains fat is not in itself a good reason to avoid eating cheese. Ah, but you say, Davey H. It's not just any fat in cheese, it's saturated fat. And saturated fat is bad for your heart. Well, I beg to differ and I do so knowing full well that it's impolite to beg. Despite the prevalence of this myth, the evidence that consuming saturated fat leads to heart disease is weak. In fact, there's some evidence that consumption of moderate amounts of saturated fat is heart protective. That's right, heart protective. How do you like them apples? And speaking of apples, if you've never enjoyed a crisp cold apple with a slice or two of extra sharp cheddar cheese, you're really missing out. And it's even better when you combine them into a grilled cheese sandwich. Go ahead, it's National Grilled Cheese Sandwich Month. Unless you're not listening to this until May, in which case, switch the apple with strawberries since it's National Strawberry Month, and they work in a grilled cheese sandwich too. But I digress. Much like the defense's case in My Cousin Vinny, the saturated fat issue does not hold water. Ms. Vito, please answer the question. Does the defense's case hold water? No. The defense is wrong. Then what about the cholesterol issue? Again, it's true. Cheese is high in cholesterol, but take all the undue shade that you see thrown at saturated fat, and multiply the undueitude—a word that I just made up but should exist—multiply the undueitude by ten. No, dial it up to eleven. Here's why. First, take a look at how the healthcare industrial complex advice on cholesterol has evolved over the years. Some of you may be old enough to remember when there was only one type of cholesterol and it was bad. Then we learn that there's a bad cholesterol, so-called LDL, and good cholesterol, also known as HDL. And now the dirty little secret is that there is a good, bad LDL and a bad, bad LDL that wellness nerds like me know about. that the general health establishment isn't ready to talk about. You put that long sad tale together and you realize our knowledge on cholesterol is really still evolving. But there's another reason dietary cholesterol is probably something we don't need to worry about and that is your body needs cholesterol and in the absence of cholesterol in the diet it makes its own. High cholesterol is usually the result of some other dietary or physiological issue. If you have high cholesterol and your doctor has you worried about it, you could try eating foods lower in cholesterol and see if it helps your numbers. But for so many of us, it's just not something to worry about. It's another thing the 2015 Dietary Guidelines for Americans reflects when it says not to worry so much about how many eggs you eat. Next is the trans fat claim. Trans fat is something I've always railed against as one of the few things people have in their diet that they really have to dump. And I'm sorry to say that cheese does have trans fat. And not just your fake cheese like Kraft American Slices, Velveeta, or that stuff that comes in a spray can, but your fancy brie, camembert, and Humboldt Fog. The trans fat in cheese is called ruminant, or dairy trans fat. Unlike trans fat found in processed foods, which are unsafe at any speed, ruminant trans fat have health benefits when eaten in small amounts. The most abundant ruminant trans fats are vaccinic acid and conjugated linoleic acid, commonly abbreviated as CLA. And CLA especially appears to have several health benefits, including preventing cancer and reversing obesity, high blood pressure, and diabetes. diabetes. Translation is that trans fat in cheese is not a transgression from advice previously transmitted. I just need to update that advice to say, don't eat it if it's synthetic trans fat. If you see trans fats in the nutrition facts of your food, but don't see partially hydrogenated oils in the ingredient list, you're probably okay. So we covered a lot already. Let's just summarize all the information about cheese and fat by reviewing the advice in the Karma Sense Eating Plan which is available wherever book-like entities are sold and from which I donate all profits to Alice's Kids. Eat good fats daily and balance a variety of good fats. Cheese is high in one of those good fats, saturated fats. While saturated fat is a good fat, most of us eat too much. So the fat content of cheese shouldn't scare you away. Just don't overdo it and make sure you're getting enough monounsaturated fat in your diet too from such sources as olive oil as well as omega-3 polyunsaturated fats from fish or flax or walnuts or seaweed or other sources you can learn about in the Karma Sense Eating Plan or on the Google machine if you're feeling frisky and don't want to help Alice's kids. How much is overdoing it? Tough to say, but I'll give it a whirl when I answer another question later in this episode. But for now, Let's move on to some of the other things about cheese that may sound scary, but aren't really. Lactose. Unlike the fat-like substance we've discussed thus far, lactose is a carbohydrate, a sugar. Lactose is milk sugar, and it's found in the milk of mammals, including human breast milk. So, obviously, lactose in itself can't be bad. It is bad for some people who are born with or develop lactose intolerance, the inability to produce the enzyme lactase, which is needed to digest lactose. If you're not one of those people who is lactose intolerant, you don't need to worry about lactose. If you like to worry anyway, you can limit your lactose exposure and still eat cheese by choosing aged cheeses, which only have trace amounts versus fresh cheese that is regular lactose lounge. Aged cheeses include brie, blue cheese, cheddar, Swiss, and many of the harder cheeses. Fresh cheese is loaded with lactose, and it includes feta, mozzarella, ricotte, and those fake cheeses, American, Velveeta, and the stuff in a can. Next, you have the belief that dairy products are just inherently bad. And this is true if one has a milk allergy. Unlike lactose intolerance, the inability to digest the carbohydrates in milk A milk allergy is a reaction to the protein in milk, which the body views as a foreign invader and sends its own little mother-of-all bombs towards in the form of an immune response. For the 97% of us who are not allergic, dairy is not inherently bad. There are widespread claims of dairy being inflammatory, and chronic inflammation is one of those things we should all be worried about. It appears, however, that the inflammatory response to dairy varies widely from person to person, which means it probably depends on all six of those karma-sense factors that impact your health, genes, physiology, physical activity, other parts of your diet, your mindset or attitude, and your physical environment. If you have any of the signs of chronic inflammation, such as obesity, diabetes, diabetes, or other metabolic issues, It may not hurt to try a dairy fast and see what happens. But, you say, humans were not meant to consume the milk of other species. Our paleo ancestors didn't do it. It Seemed to work out for them. Okay, it may have worked out for some of them, but plenty of them starved because they didn't consume cow or other dairy products. At some point in the course of human events, a mutation occurred that allowed a subset of our ancestors to digest lactose well into adulthood. During famine years, that meant that people who had access to cows, for example, could get a renewable source of protein, milk, without having to kill off an ever-dwindling herd for food. This is a process known as evolution. It's a good thing. I never really get when people argue that you shouldn't eat dairy products from other species, but are fine with eating the flesh that manufactures that dairy product. I'm not being difficult, I just can't make heads nor tails over that distinction. One final concern about cheese, and I'll shut up on this topic. Cheese is addictive. I learned in episode 18 of the Foodcast, the vegan episode, that cheese contains morphine, or a morphine-like product that's equally addictive. Since then, I've seen that claim more and more in such infallible sources as Facebook, where I learned that cheese not only contains a morphine-like substance, but it also contains speed. Who needs a neighborhood dealer when you can just go to the cheesemonger? Well, apologies to my episode 18 guest, Remy Rory, but I don't buy it. I love you, man, but I don't buy it. The speed claim comes from the fact that cheese is a source of phenylethylamine. Sounds scary, and the Facebook link even says, Good rule of thumb, if you can't pronounce a word, much less spell the word, then you shouldn't risk putting it in your body. And that's not a bad rule but it's an oversimplification because I find nicotinamide, nicotinamide riboside harder to pronounce than phenylethylamine. But if I don't eat enough nicotinamide riboside, I'm likely going to develop dementia because nicotinamide riboside, I'm getting better, is also known as vitamin B3 and it's essential to your health. Phenolethylamine, see, it just rolls off the tongue. Anyway, phenylethylamine helps stimulate the production of dopamine and serotonin in your body, and these make you feel good. Among other things, they help prevent depression. You could choose to skip cheese to avoid an overdose of phenylethylamine, but you better skip beans, nuts, seeds, and other sources as well. Oh yeah, and chocolate. Stop eating that too. The morphine claim comes from the fact that cheese contains a protein called casein, which your body converts to casomorphins which bind to the opioid receptors in your brain. What I learned from Remy is literally true. Casomorphins are very, very, I mean very weak forms of morphins. They are in no way mighty morphins. (coughs) And the process of digesting cheese in the gut and having those casomorphins circumnavigate the bloodstream and find their way in the brain is so convoluted, it looks like one of those family circus cartoons where mom sends Billy on an urgent errand. Sorry if you don't know what I'm talking about. I'm old. If you're curious, check the show notes. At the end of the day, a slight nod to Mike Teal, for you Mike Teal fans out there. You can't eat enough cheese to get an addicting level of opioids in your system. That's not a dare, mind you. It's a fact. You can't eat enough cheese for that to happen. If cheese is addictive, it's because it's freaking delicious. Beyond delicious, it's nutritious in that it's a great source for protein, vitamins, and minerals, and it has direct health benefits, including the expected skeleton strengthening features of calcium and the less expected heart strengthening features of the vitamins and proteins it contains. Proteins including the casein, which the body converts to casomorphins, but which also lowers blood pressure. And Belle, that's about enough cheese talk for one episode of the Foodcast not dedicated to cheese. Thanks so much for your request. Imagine what a cheese dedicated episode might be like. For example, I made it through this whole segment with only one cheese pun. Do you think I'd be able to show that kind of restraint for a full 45 minutes or so? Yeah, I can show restraint on cheese puns, but I'm all in on casomorphin puns. Anyway, it's time to circle back to a comment I made in the cheese segment regarding vegans and whether their lifestyle is superior when it comes to promising health, sustainability, and being more humane. Some new research popped up over the health question, and was timely, because a local Alexandria, Virginia vegan on the street had a bone to pick with me on my premise that maybe it isn't healthier. And don't worry, it was a textured soy protein bone, so no vertebrates were harmed in the advancement of his discussion. The premise was, there really isn't any debate anymore on the health superiority of a vegan diet. All you have to do is listen to Dr. Michael Greger, a guy who probably loves reading research more than I do, to come to this conclusion. If you don't know Dr. Greger, he runs a site called NutritionFacts.org, and he's prolific on YouTube with videos that, among other things, promotes the avoidance of animal products as food by presenting the latest research in an accessible and not-too-heavy-handed way. I love Dr. Greger, a reaction you should expect from one nebishy research-obsessed geek who wants to make wellness accessible and not-too-heavy-handed to another. But in my opinion, Dr. Greger is guilty of a bit of cherry-picking. He gloms onto the research that supports his point of view and conveniently ignores any data that contradicts. And to support my opinion, I've managed to do a bit of cherry-picking on my own. In this very month of this very year, April 2017, the journal Preventative Medicine published a University of Sydney study, Go Fightin' – oh crap, University of Sydney, like most universities outside of America, doesn't have a mascot. Let's just say, go fightin' shrimps on the barbie, mate. Anyway, their study examined a quarter of a million Australian men aged 45 and up and stratified them, which I guess is legal in Australia, stratified them into the whole spectrum of not eating meat, to eating no meat other than fish, to eating mostly plant-based, but a little bit of meat, to being an omnivore. In the end, they found death rates to be the same regardless of diet choices. What that means to me is that you can probably lead an unhealthy vegan lifestyle, full of textured soy protein bones and other vegan junk foods. Or, you can lead a very healthy meat and cheese and egg eating diet that's, I hesitate to use the term, but what the heck, clean. In other words, the jury's still out. There may be very specific characteristics about the vegan diet that lead to better health, and we just don't know it yet. Or maybe it's a you are not in situation where all the things that make you unique lead you to a diet that's uniquely healthful. Or maybe this is a peculiar phenomenon in Australia, and it's a matter of no diet in the world can overcome the damaging effects of Australian water, also known as Foster's Lager. One thing it proves to me, and that I said to the local Alexandria Vegan, is that no one can definitively prove yet that any specific diet resplendent with plants and devoid of processed foods is superior to another and the other thing it proves is in deference to dave berry resplendent in the devoids would be an excellent name for a rock and roll band as part of the KarmaSense media empire's regular shtick i post daily curated stories about food nutrition and wellness through various social media channels Recently, I posted an article about a court ruling that cage-free hens don't improve egg safety or egg nutrition. The headline floored me, and not for the reasons you might suspect. I wouldn't really expect cage-free eggs to be safer or more nutritious. I'm just curious why a court's involved. And maybe I'm just shocked in the Captain Renault from Casablanca sort of way. I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Everybody out at once. Because what really happened is the cage-free farming community wanted to make these claims. And the faction that thinks all chickens should be caged, the modern factory farm knew this would harm their business, so they fought it. Ultimately, it went to court. The court reviewed the research, and the ruling sided with the good old-fashioned chicken torture lobby. But hmm, maybe there's another reason why people would want to buy eggs from chicken that aren't tortured by being held captive in space in which they can't turn around or even move their wings. And granted, I still maintain that chickens are assholes. But I know lots of people who are assholes and I don't want to stop them from spreading their wings. This opens up another can of worms. And by the way, chickens love worms. It's their natural food. When you see eggs or chickens in the supermarket that are touting the fact that they're raised on a vegetarian diet, you're fighting nature. Chickens like and should be eating worms and bugs. They're not going through the same existential crisis I do about whether I should be eating meat or not. They've made their decision. They're not vegetarians. Now, back to that recently opened can of worms. Cage-free doesn't mean cruelty-free. It sounds good. And it may be marginally better than the current norm, but cage-free simply means the walls of the cage are gone. There are various categories of cage-free, but for the most part, the chickens can move freely. Along with this comes an increased need to de-beak the chicken, because they are assholes and get in fights with their slightly less tightly packed housemates. One thing cage-free chickens don't necessarily get is outside access. For that, they need to be pasture-raised. And I didn't even start this whole tirade with the intent to talk about chickens, because this is a Dear Davey H. episode of the Foodcast, in which I respond to listener comments and questions. And listener Robin commented the following on that chicken post, quote, The confusing maze of legalese and marketing jargon equates to much nonsense, and I thank you for your efforts to help your fellow man decipher. On that note, the other day as I was watching one of the Netflix food-related shows, this was... GMO, OMG, it occurred to me that the GMO is not or may not always be the problem per se, but the reason for the GMO is the important thing. In the case of farming, dredging with pesticides so we can eat the glyphosate, for example, was the reason. If they make a chicken that grows more meat without making my DNA get weird or inflaming my bursa, mazel But natural and cage-free and no artificial preservatives all mean bupkis. Carry on, my good man. Light the way to Karma Sense. And this is why I love Robin. Because not only does she get Karma Sense and play along, but she's about as bad at staying on topic as I am and somehow encourages me to bloviate about confusing egg labels and GMO in one foodcast segment. So thank you, Robin, and I agree with you about GMOs. And anyone who's witnessed yours or my political debates on Facebook know us agreeing is a rare thing. But more impressive than my agreeing with you, the National Academy of Sciences agrees with you. For those who don't know, the National Academy of Sciences is the team we nerds join once we no longer qualify as mathletes. Recently, the National Academy of Science issued a report about genetically modified organisms, or GMOs, and here's a quick take on the report. A panel of 20 experts that made up the Academy said that GMOs are safe. They also concluded that they're good for consumers, farmers, and the environment. However, many of the hoped-for advantages of GMOs have not yet come to fruition, and the technology is evolving so quickly, we shouldn't allow that to outpace or outrun our ability to regulate them. As part of the review, the Academy looked at many of the perceived negative aspects of GMOs and addresses each of them. People are generally concerned about GMOs for the following reasons. One, they accelerate the evolution of pesticide-resistant pests and herbicide-resistant herbs. Two, they produce new allergens or substances that could encourage the growth of tumors or mutations. Three, they reduce biodiversity. GMO products are uniform in their genetic code. Everyone's an identical twin. And when farmers depend on GMOs, the more diverse, conventional strains languish, and they may disappear. And finally, GMOs might create evil crime-of-nature monstrosities, such as killer tomatoes or even man-bear pigs. Outside in the realm of biology, haters also worry that GMOs create a business environment that's anti-farmer and ultimately anti-consumer. Part of this concern is based on rumors that really are just fake news, that Monsanto sues farmers who don't license their seeds, but who, through the serendipity of nature and the birds and the bees, ends up with GMO DNA in their non-GMO fields. Let's take the last one first, because the others are all related. The Academy didn't address the whole lawsuit licensing thing, because it is fake news. It never happened, and all claims otherwise are easily discredited. The Academy did conclude that farmers come out okay, but they only looked at it from the macro level and not the micro level. For what I've been able to tell, GMOs definitely create winners and losers in the farm community. The losers are usually the smaller, low-income farmers who can't afford the licensing fees and regulations demanded by the patent-holding seed manufacturers. Essentially, they lose their ability to compete, and this threatens access to food in the places that are greatest risk for hunger. The other concerns, the biological ones, all have to do with the law of unintended consequences. And this is probably the most controversial conclusion in the Academy report. That is, that there is no substantiated evidence that GMOs damage our health or the environment. GMO corn, soy, canola, and cotton are all real versions of corn, soy, canola, and cotton. This claim is based on the review of hundreds of studies that looked at potential links to cancer, obesity, digestive issues, kidney diseases, and allergies. The report notes that GMOs have been part of the American diet for decades, while Europeans have been able to avoid them. However, the trends in all of those potential negative side effects are virtually the same in both locations. The trends are going in the same direction when controlled for other factors other than GMOs. But the National Academy of Sciences does not give GMOs a free pass in perpetuity. First, they concede that the introduction of new genetic combinations could introduce substances that can cause allergies. Second, they acknowledge the existence of evolution. They think it's a real thing, and that the creation of herbicide-resistant crops can lead to superweeds. I get it the idea of superweed may be attractive to some people. But superweed isn't really what you think. Finally, the report recommends that regulations for GMOs be strengthened and evolve with the times. Genetic engineering isn't a static science. Progress marches on. New technologies, such as CRISPR, the very sound of which gives me the munchies, puts gene editing tools in the hands of every college freshman. And with that... Maybe that kind of superweed is a possibility. Furthermore, careless use of GMOs in the field could lead to those pesticide-resistant pests and herbicide-resistant herbs. And no, not that kind of herb. In other words, the law of unintended consequences remains an issue. Finally, the Academy is toast about one subset of regulations, GMO labeling and the consumer's right to know. They limit the discussion to acknowledging that there is a debate going on, whether to label GMO products, and that the debate should be allowed to play out. In the U.S., it has played out, and it's a half-assed solution. It's a start, and lucky for you, it's beyond the scope of this discussion. What does this all mean from a karma sense perspective? 1. Genetically engineered foods have great promise to address many problems in the world, including, of course, malnutrition and hunger. Two, to date, the biggest commercial applications haven't been used this way. The technologies applies to maximize production of commodity crops that are then primarily used for purposes such as fuel or to create ultra-processed junk food for people who have the means to be more selective in what they eat. Three, research shows that the current goal to maximize production hasn't come to fruition. So far, GMO crops have not created significantly more food than non-GMO varieties. GMOs lose the productivity argument. 4. Regardless, people have the right to know whether what they eat contains GMO ingredients. Big foods attempts at squashing labeling requirements is self-serving bullcrap. 5. On the flip side, some people accept the signs of GMOs. That is, that they're safe. But they still resist because of that law of unintended consequences. They're not convinced the regulation can ever be enough. And it's a fair concern, because we know from multiple examples that adding species of plants and animals to an ecosystem that did not previously support them can wreak havoc on the environment. But it's also important to note that inventing a technology and not using it also has unintended consequences. And there you have it, Robin. But wait. What were we talking about again? Which came first, the GMO or the egg? Uh, I gotta lay off the superweed. Another topic I foreshadowed in the cheese discussion was an exploration of serving size amounts. Trini asks, how much is too much of a good thing? Too much peanut butter, too much cheese, but how much? And if you skip a day, can you have more the next or is every day separate? How much is too much olive oil? I'm not talking about gaining weight, but just for health. Too much avocado. Too many greens. Too much protein. There's an old wives' tale regarding kidneys issues. And how many carrots to get keratinitis? Wow, Trini, I love that question. I can't answer it, but I love it. And you know why I can't answer it? It's all Crazy Joe Davola's fault. You know, Crazy Joe Davola from Seinfeld. In Seinfeld, Crazy Joe Devola is a writer for NBC who suffers from mental problems. He blames Jerry for misfortunes, dated and stalked Elaine, and he attacked Kramer. Crazy Joe is a fictional character named after a real-life TV producer named Joe DiVola. Not crazy, just Joe. The real Joe D'Avola developed hit shows such as In Living Color and Spin City. His first show was a game show on MTV called Remote Control. Adam Sandler, Colin Quinn, and other well-known comedians got their first break on that show. Remote Control was the first original, non-musical program ever shown on MTV, and we all know what happened next. Video may have killed the radio star, but Joe DiVola killed the video star. MTV went from music television to reality show television. MTV used to have hosts throughout the day they called VJs, video jockeys, a takeoff on radio disc jockeys. You may remember the names of some of those VJs. Julie Brown, famous for her hit, The Homecoming Queen Got a Gun. J.J. Jackson, Mark Goodman, Moon Unit Zappa, Julie Brown. No, not that Julie Brown, downtown Julie Brown. Nina Blackwood, Adam Curry, and my personal crush, Martha Quinn. (sighs) But with the de-emphasis of videos on MTV, VJs became redundant, were picked off one by one like red shirts in Star Trek. Many of these VJs found greener pastures. One in particular, Adam Curry, became heavily involved in a new broadcasting medium called podcasting. Curry was so early into the podcasting game that he's often referred to as the Pod Father. Podcasting, as you know, is similar to radio broadcasting in that it's a medium for delivering audio content to a broad audience. It has the added benefit of reaching that broad audience on demand, as opposed to some set time and day such as afternoon drive or morning zoo. But replacement of the root word broad with the word pod in the term podcasting doesn't remove the constraint that podcasts still target a broad audience. They can't be customized to each individual audience member. And Trini, to do your question any justice requires customization to the individual audience member. So it should now be abundantly clear, I really can't answer this question, and it's all Crazy Joe DeVola's fault. But just because I can't answer the question, doesn't mean I won't try. Because there are still plenty of nuggets that can be taken away by the broad audience. And you can blame that ability on the Karma Sense Eating Plan, a broadcast medium in book form that gives readers the tools to create an individually customized plan to be happier, healthier, and Oh yeah, save the world! The Karma Sense Eating Plan has a section entitled Plan that provides resources to reach those lofty, happy, healthy, world-saving objectives. And it all starts with defining your desired destination, acknowledging your priorities and constraints, and using those to articulate your goal. Because as Yogi Berra purportedly said, if you don't know where you're going, you might not get there. Trini, knowing where you're going is key to getting your question answered. Because the answer to how much is too much of a good thing is dependent upon your destination and varies based on the content and specificity of that destination. I'd give a completely different answer if your goal is just about being healthier versus losing weight versus attaining single-digit body fat composition versus breaking the world record consumption of Oreos eaten in 5 minutes, which by the way was 78. Think about that. That's more than 15 Oreos every minute or one every four seconds. Now Trini, since you've eliminated the desire to lose weight in at least one part of your question, and since there are only a few people around who have the desire and drive for either single-digit body fat or eating a literal crap load of Oreos, the Karma Sense Eating Plan does give some guidance on how much is too much for Gen Pop, and it does so in the form of its five eating mantras. Number one, eat slowly and stop before you're full. If you're able to master the second half of that mantra, stop before you're full, and the rest of your diet is balanced, you probably don't have to worry about eating too much of anything, especially if you adopt mantra number two and three. Mantra number two is eat protein in every meal. For a woman, that means eating about a palm-sized portion of protein in each meal, and for a man, it means two palms worth. That protein will keep you feeling full, make sure you maintain muscle mass, keep your metabolism revving, and do other magical things that won't harm your kidneys unless your kidneys are already unhealthy, in which case follow doctor's orders. Eating more protein than that in a meal is of limited value since your body has an upper limit of the amount of protein it can use at any one time. Mantra number three is eat more vegetables and fruits. If you eat a large variety, the rainbow of vegetables and fruits, you'll never have to worry about too much. You're aiming for eight to 10 fist sized portions a day. That's a lot, so take stock of what you eat now, and see if you can pump it up by one or two servings. The benefit of doing this is a lot of healthy fiber and the richest possible source of vitamins, minerals, and phyto thingies than you can get from any other source of food. And tying this one back to your specific question about carrots and keratinosis, which is a result of too much carotenoids in the diet and manifests itself by an orange or yellow tone in the skin, it is a possibility, but not a probability, if you do in fact eat plenty of plants that are purple, red, green, and white, as well as whole grains and quality sources of protein. If your diet consists of mostly yellow and orange vegetables, nothing else, or if you're taking a carotene or vitamin A supplement, then you're eating too much and you have the risk of keratinosis. Your body converts those yellow and orange food pigments, also known as carotenoids, to vitamin A. And A is one of those vitamins that your body can store for future use. Get too much and you turn Oompa Loompa orange. It also may cause nausea, dizziness, headaches, and birth defects. And you have no idea how much restraint I'm showing right now by not making snide comments about the complexion of Americans' leadership at this point. You also ask specifically about greens. Unless you have certain conditions that your doctor would talk to you about, such as kidney stones it's unlikely that you'll eat too much. However, be mindful about eating too much cramp bark, cleavers, and couch grass, because it will make you turn purple like George Costanza did in the heart attack episode of Seinfeld. Mantra number four says, eat whole food carbohydrates after vigorous exercise. And frankly, that's a mantra I totally screwed up. It's great advice, especially if you want to lose weight, but it emphasizes weight loss as a goal more than it probably should bottom line is eat whole food carbohydrates full of fiber instead of refined carbohydrates full of sugar cup your hand and the amount you can fill in your palm is a single serving of these carbohydrates eat one to two servings of whole carbohydrates in a meal if you must eat white rice or pasta or bread or other refined carbs stick to one serving finally mantra number five is eat good fats daily and balance a variety of fats There are three categories of fats, and one of those categories gets broken down into two subcategories. The three main categories are saturated fats, which are fats that are solid at room temperature, monounsaturated fats, and polyunsaturated fats. And none of those fats is truly superior to the other. You need to get all three. Saturated fat is really easy for non-vegans to get, so don't worry about it. Vegans can get their share from coconut oil. Monounsaturated fat is what makes olive oil and avocado so healthy. We don't generally get enough of it, and that's why it's emphasized as a good fat, even though by now we know that all fat is good. Polyunsaturated fats come in two main forms, omega-3 and omega-6. The significance of the name is immaterial, unless it's trivia night at your local watering hole, and if that's the case, just ask me to join your team, because I guarantee you we'll kick ass. Omega-3 is the fish oil you're told to take, but it's also available in walnuts, flaxseed, and other foods, proudly listed in a beautiful table in the Karma Eating Plan. Most people don't get enough Omega-3s. Omega-6 is what's in common vegetable oils, including corn, peanut, safflower, and so on, and we get too much. Trini, tying this back to the specifics in your question, you have two choices. First is to make sure that one-third of your fat intake consists of saturated fat, one-third monounsaturated, and one-third polyunsaturated, and of the polyunsaturated, aim for a one-to-one ratio of omega-3 and omega-6. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pain in the butt to manage. So just try and reduce the amount of saturated and omega-6 fats you eat, and increase the amount of monounsaturated and omega-3 that you eat. When considering fat added to your meal, don't worry about the fat that may already be part of your protein source, but limit added fat to about a thumb-sized portion of your meal. And if that protein is something fatty, like it's a steak or a pork chop or something like that, then try to skip the butter for that meal. And Trini, again, tying this back to some of your specifics, cheese counts as a saturated fat. Peanut butter is an omega-6, but not all nuts are the same, so look for a handy reference if you're curious. Armasense Eating Plan has one. Trini, if you can follow all that, then you don't have too much to worry about. In my coaching practice, I have various targets of daily macronutrient intake, macronutrients being protein, carbohydrates, and fat that depend on your goal and starting point. Daily protein targets fall between 25% and 35% of calories per day. Daily carbohydrate targets fall between 25 and 55% of calories per day and daily fat targets fall between 20 and 40% a day. For the average person just trying to be healthy, I'd aim for 30% protein, 40% carbohydrates, and 30% fat. There are tons of tools for smartphones and on the internet to help you plan this. Part of this question also asks whether you can skip days and make up for it later. Generally, there's no benefit to loading up on day two of some food because you missed out on your allocation on day one. But if you missed out on day one, don't worry about it. Your body's resilient. It can stand the fact that you ate nothing all day but two packages of Oreos in preparation for a record-breaking stint during the commercial break of a Seinfeld binge watch. If, between those tools and this advice, or the more in-depth advice in the Karma Sense Eating Plan, you still need help, talk to your friendly neighborhood health coach. Or skip ahead and go right to him immediately, because he does get lonely. He's happy to answer one-off questions or you can arrange for a longer-term program. And, if after all that you still have issues with eating too much of a good thing, blame Crazy Joe Davola. <laughs> and that wraps up another episode of the Foodcast. I hope you did something fun while I was out on assignment. Mrs. H and I sure had fun mucking about Wales and Ireland. The weather was uncharacteristically beautiful and we had the chance to explore the region's history, culture, nature, and of course, food. We made some new friends and connected with some old, including the winner of the 1981 Slim Whitman Lookalike Contest. It was a near-perfect vacation, but it did include some work too, and I hope to share the fruits of our labor sometime within the next year. I want to thank you, as always, for supporting the Foodcast. I also want to thank Bell, Robin, and Trini for this week's topics. If you want to support the Foodcast, there's a real easy way to do it. Just mosey on over to the Karma Foodcast iTunes page and submit a review. Until next time, remember that it is springtime. And remember what your old pal Slim Whitman always said.